Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm Alberto Ligi, your host from London. Please subscribe to the show and please share widely with others. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today we are talking about serendipity. You know, the reality that there's more to success than blind luck. Serendipity, uh, how can you put it to use and how can you look at life slightly differently? in order to put it to use. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the Do One Better podcast, Christian Bush, who is a faculty member at NYU and the London School of Economics, and recently has written a book, The Serendipity Mindset, The Art and Science of Creating Good Luck. Christian, welcome onto the Do One Better podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Albert. It's an absolute pleasure. Tell us a little bit about serendipity. What, what is serendipity? Yeah, so this kind of unexpected good luck that comes from, you know, moments where something happens and we connect the dots and do something with it, to your point, right? I've, I've been fascinated by this question of if we think about luck in the sense of not the blind luck that is all about, you know, inheriting something or being born into a family, that's not what we can influence. But what we can influence is this kind of active smart luck where essentially take this scenario, right, you're in a coffee shop and you spill, if you have erratic hand movements like I, you might spill a coffee and there's this person sitting next to you and you're like, oh my God, I'm so sorry about this. And so that's an unexpected thing happening. Um, but now usually a lot of times we might just say, oh, I'm sorry, here's the napkin and move on with our day. But actually, you know, we might have sensed there's a certain connection with this person or there might have been something interesting there. We might have stuck up a conversation and, and really kind of have turned that into something. And what I'm really fascinated by is how we can have the same kind of situation where, let's say, we walk out of the coffee shop now and we're like, ah, I could have talked with this person. There could have been something interesting or, or not. And so really this idea of how do we essentially set ourselves up for the unexpected, but also turn this into positive outcomes. Yeah. I'll tell you something about myself, which is nothing's happened by design. Most of the things in my life have been as an as an unintended consequence of a, of a chance encounter, an exploratory coffee, um, and not necessarily having a highly prescriptive notion of what that coffee should be about. You know, just exchanging notes and and letting things go from there. I don't know if that's how most people are, but. Well, I mean, that's the interesting thing I felt, especially also in our in a lot of our research, that in a way what I found extremely fascinating as an entrepreneur, as a community builder, and now as a researcher is that the most kind of joyful, purpose-driven, successful people around me seem to intuitively do that, right? They seem to intuitively cultivate serendipity. Intuitively, they would look at an unexpected situation and then do something with it versus, you know, there's fascinating experiments that show us that other people might not do that. So, for example, there's this one experiment where um, they took one person, and, and that was more about perception, but it's it's making the same point, where they took one person who self-identifies as extremely lucky, so someone who says, good things happen to me, I make things, you know, like like I, I make my own luck, versus someone who says, oh, I'm so unlucky, bad things always happen to me. And then they say, well, walk down the street, uh, go into the coffee shop, sit down, and then wait until we'll do our interview. Like, that's it, nothing else. Uh -huh. And what they don't tell them is, hey, wait, there's um, hidden cameras across the street and in the coffee shop, and there's only one empty seat in the coffee shop. Mm -hmm. And there's this extremely successful businessman who can big, make big dreams happen. They also don't tell them that there's a five, five pound note in front of the door. And now, you know, the lucky person walks down the street, sees the five pound note, picks it up, 
goes inside the shop, orders the coffee, sits next to the businessman, that's the only seat that's empty, has a wonderful conversation with the businessman, exchanges business cards, and probably an opportunity coming out of it. We don't know that. Um, the unlucky person walks down the street, steps over the five-pound note, <laughs> goes inside the shop, uh, orders the coffee, uh, uh, sits, sits next to that businessman, the other person's left, ignores the businessman, and that's it. Now, at the end of the day, they ask both people, so how was your day? And the lucky person says, well, it was amazing. You know, I found money in the streets. I made two new friends, like the, the barista and the, the businessman. And we don't know if an opportunity came out of it, but, you know, it wouldn't be unexpected. Mm. The, the unlucky person just says, well, nothing really happened. And I've seen that so much, you know, in terms of when you think about people in the most diverse of contexts. A lot of my work is, is you know, both in kind of settings of executive boards and then in settings of extreme poverty. And what's fascinating is to see people in whatever situation, whatever context, the way they frame the world and the way they approach the world already has a lot of kind of impact on actually how much serendipity they experience. Of course, the serendipity kind of base level is very different if I'm in a very resource constrained environment where I have structural constraints, but even in those settings, um, there is ways of how we can actually reframe situations. So I'm fascinated by that kind of psychological notion as well. What got you into all of this? It's interesting because, you know, I started out as a community builder and I've, I've always had this kind of intense uh, search for meaning uh, or, or, you know, this desire of, of somehow figuring out what life is all about. Mm. I had a couple of experiences early on in life, um, you know, like a car crash and other things, which were kind of these near-death experience type things that, that made you make you realize how quickly life can be over. And so, so it instilled this kind of urgency and, and really trying to figure out what life is about. I started reading a lot of Viktor Frankl and, and his wonderful book, Search for Meaning, trying to figure out, you know, what is it that, that could be done meaningfully in this world? And so um, it started out for me as a community builder because um, that felt like a way, okay, I can connect people here. I can help make meaningful connections and, and so on. And one of the things I found fascinating is how when we started cultivating um, dinners, for example, with uh, the community sandbox that I, that I co-founded, um, what happened was that people at these dinners would always be like, oh, my God, such a coincidence, such a coincidence, such a coincidence. And it would be so often that people would use that phrase, oh, my God, such a coincidence. And it always gave me so much joy, you know, to see that spark that comes from two people finding some unexpected overlap or that this kind of unexpected idea that comes to them and, and just seeing that joy that, that comes with it. And so um, I got really excited about it on a practical level. And I, I saw it kind of I started seeing it happen with with us. We called at some point Sandbox a serendipity accelerator, um, but but it was really kind of first on that practical side. But then, you know, I, I kind of I started working more in academia because, um, you know, I, I try to understand a bit more the patterns behind what is the impact we're actually having here? How do we scale that up and so on? And to my absolute delight, serendipity popped up everywhere. Like mm. it was always the kind of thing that some people did a little bit differently than others in terms of how they cultivated that. And so it was really kind of, especially the book now and, and the last kind of um, three years, but, but in general, the last 10 years, were really about this question of what is a science-based framework behind this? Like, how can we understand how people cultivate this? And they usually do that subconsciously, but what are the patterns behind this psychologically, um, 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 also in, in terms of like what we can can do as companies and, and so on. So I, I, I've really enjoyed this idea of bringing together different research, you know, from chemistry, physics, management, with the kind of practical experiences from, from around the world to say, okay, there is a science-based framework for how we can actually cultivate serendipity. Now, it's a fascinating book and no other than Paul Pullman, who used to run Unilever, I, I believe he said something along the lines of it offers excellent practical guidance for all. 
which is not a, a small endorsement. Uh, tell us a little bit about the book itself. So if I get my hands on it, what is it that I'm going to walk away with? Well, it's really saying it, it takes you on a journey, a journey of saying, if we look at serendipity, not as something that just happens to us. So this kind of one moment, you know, not that only that moment where I run into a co-founder in a coffee shop or something, but actually as a process of having that kind of moment, that unexpectedness, but also then having to do something with it, having to connect the dots, having to relate that to some kind of problem we're solving, some kind of passion we have or so on. And so the book is really to say, how do we create more meaningful accidents? So how do we create more quote unquote serendipity triggers? Mm -hmm. um, and I'll talk about this in a second how. And then the second part really about how do we learn how to connect the dots differently to, to really um, do something with it? And so one of the, the, the kind of simple, I'm a big fan of, of simple behavioral changes because I feel um, you know, there's there's only so many things we can do. And so throughout the book, there's a lot of exercises of like small behavioral kind of uh, tweaks we can do. Okay. And so one, for example, is around um, setting hooks. So this idea, you know, this dreaded question when you're, let's say, you know, on a, at a conference or at the moment, maybe in a Zoom type environment with new people. And this dreaded question comes up. What do you do? And, you know, we could now just say, oh, I'm I'm running a podcast or I'm doing X, Y, Z. Or you could do what Ollie Barrett does in London, a wonderful entrepreneur. He would essentially say something like, well, I'm an educational entrepreneur, but I recently started reading into philosophy. But what I'm really excited about is playing the piano. <laughs> so what he does here is he gives you three potential hooks where you could be like, oh, my God, such a coincidence. I just started hosting matinees and I would love you to play the piano there. Or, oh, my God, such a coincidence. We just started a platform around philosophy or X, Y, Z. The point here is that essentially he gives you potential dots that you could connect. Yeah. And by doing this, um, it makes it much more likely that there's some kind of serendipity trigger. Um, and that's the same the way we ask questions, right? Do we just ask something like, what do you do? Which puts you into a box and gives you one kind of dot to connect with versus what is on your mind? What, what excites you at the moment? Whatever it is that kind of opens up that, that opportunity space. And so that's really about like small behavioral changes to say, hey, these are potential dots we can create. But then also, you know, there's a lot around how do we essentially enable people to connect the dots? Mm -hmm. So if you think about something like rituals in organizations, right? One of my favorites here is actually postmortems or, or kind of project funerals, right. which are all about saying, uh, at the end of the day, we have to give people an excuse to help each other connect the dots. And so in this example, it's, it's a company um, that, you know, they developed this window frame and um, it was kind of, you know, the idea was it wouldn't reflect light. And it's an amazing technology, but they didn't really like see that there's maybe not a, that big of a market for it. Mm -hmm. So the project manager here would um, go on stage in front of other project managers from other divisions and say, hey, look, this was the idea. Didn't really work out, but this is what we learned from it. So it's not about celebrating failure, but it's about celebrating the learning from what didn't work. And by doing this, essentially, what in this case happened would be they would say, hey, look, um, this technology is great, but the market wasn't there. And someone in the audience would be like, oh, my God, hey, have you considered what this would mean for solar? Have you considered if you take that technology into solar panels, like how effective that could uh, absorb energy? And so that's how part of their solar division emerged. Completely coincidentally, right? It was just luck, they would say. But actually, they developed a ritual or a process which allowed them, allowed someone in the audience to connect the dots because they made it visible 
what didn't work or what was there. And so it's really something I've seen in a lot of companies where a lot of times we have this tendency of when something doesn't work out, we try to hide it away. We try to say, oh, it never really happened. But actually, an idea usually isn't bad, right? It just a lot of times doesn't work in a particular context. And if we make that visible, then people in other contexts can connect the dots and say, oh, in my context, that might work. Uh, it also builds trust and, and, and knowledge sharing, of course. Um, um, much, much better. But so it's really these kind of practices that allow us to connect dots differently because we, we make them more transparent. And so there's the, the book is, is full of these kind of like rituals and, and practices we can use to accelerate serendipity within organizations and, and for individuals. Fascinating. Are there some of us who are by, by nature, by personality, more serendipity minded, I guess, than others. And I'm just thinking about perhaps our tolerance for ambiguity, our, our appetite for risk. Um, I imagine serendipity may not be for that person who is, uh, craves absolute certainty of what's going to happen on the third Thursday in November, 2021. Um, maybe you need some, uh, appetite for ambiguity. I'm not sure. What's your take on that? That's a great question, especially, I mean, if you look at the current situation, right, with COVID, where it's almost like we don't have a choice, like we don't have a choice to, to, to only plan, but we have to build in, we have to build a certain muscle for the unexpected. Um, and so I think you're completely right that for a long time, I think for a lot of us, serendipity was almost like a nice to have, right? We're like, oh, great, it can help us with innovation, or it can bring more joy to our lives. But in a world that is so full of uncertainty and unexpectedness, it's almost it's 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 an active approach towards towards running your life. I mean, there's this um, um, a great uh, CEO of Cummins, uh, Tom, uh, Thomas Lindeberger, and what he would uh, say is that uh, for him, cultivating serendipity is essentially an active approach to managing uncertainty. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I come from Germany. Like I grew up with a very risk-averse mindset, right? I grew up with I want to plan things out, I want to structure things. But one of the things I realized is whenever then there is ambiguity, then I get really nervous because I'm like, oh, my God, like I wanted to plan all this out. And so especially because I don't like risk, especially because I don't like ambiguity, building a muscle for preparing for whatever could happen and like combining that with a sense of direction, combining that with planning actually made life for me so much easier because essentially now you're not seeing the unexpected as a threat or as or uncertainty as a threat, but you're seeing it as something that you're just building in as a as a potentiality that that could help you to 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 build even cooler stuff and so or to 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 manage life even better. Um, and I think that is really something. So we did a study with um, purpose-driven leaders recently, where we um, essentially sat down with CEOs of large companies that want to integrate purpose. So companies like Mastercard. Um, or, or others who say, look, we've been doing well on the financial side, but we want to do much more on social impact. And we try to understand what is the patterns behind those that seem to be doing it well, and, and what, what are the patterns their leaders portray. And one of the key themes that came out of it was that their leaders, they have this kind of sense of direction, right? So you say, uh, as a MasterCard, you would say, well, we want to lift 500, people, uh, 500 million people into the financial system uh, using our technology, right? So you're, you're relating your capabilities to the sustainable development goals. Mm -hmm. So you have a sense of direction, but you also have the humility or you also have the openness to say, 
we don't know exactly how we'll do that. We know that we want to do that. We know why we want to do that. But the how will most probably emerge. And, you know, I've been fascinated um, by this kind of mixture between having a clear sense of direction and a purpose, but at the same time, this readiness for the unexpected. Because if you look at current situations, right, look at what's happening in New York at the moment. I'm here in New York, um, and it's been a really tough situation. And, and a lot of us went through having COVID or went through having people, we lost people around here. And, and it was a really tough period. But one of the things that in terms of leadership was very interesting is that the governor here, um, at the beginning, he missed out a little bit on some of the kind of, you know, like COVID and, 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 and some of the, the, the things that happened. But then at some point, he took leadership and he said, look, everyone, I have two principles here. Uh, the principles are very clear, which is economic health and public health. And that is what I'm fighting for. And I will give you an approximate timeline for when the city will open up. I will tell you the approximate dates, but I can already tell you now that based on these principles, whenever we get new information, and especially if we get unexpected information, I will revise that timeline. And so what he did here is that he gives you a certain sense of he knows what he's doing. He gives you a sense of control. He gives you a sense of direction. But at the same time, he doesn't make himself vulnerable to the unexpected, which a lot of other governors did. A lot of other governors did it the other way around. They would say, here's the exact plan of when we open up and X, Y, Z. But by doing this, they essentially then had to revise themselves all the time and lost their credibility because people didn't trust them anymore. Or they even had to sometimes, you know, work their data because they were like, no, no, the data doesn't fit our timeline. And that's obviously what happens in companies as well, that a lot of times, because we're so over-focused on plans, a lot of times we don't want to see data that doesn't fit our plan. Versus if you do what, what Cuomo did is you're open to new surprising data. And by doing this, essentially, you still can relate all of this to um, the, the sense of direction. And by the way, I'm pretty sure serendipity happens to him much more often because he mm. can see something new and connect it to his kind of North Star. And, and I think, um, you know, there's, there's pretty cool examples, actually, without wanting to, uh, to go into too much detail. But just to bring that point home with an example... Um, that, that I've been fascinated by um, is is the potato washing machine. Okay, um, it's it's one of the most hilarious, you know, random things that I've seen. But um, I, I think it brings that point home in terms of um, it's this Chinese company I've been doing um, some work with, and they are a white goods company, and they got calls from farmers, and the farmers said, "Hey, look, um, your washing machine is always breaking down whenever we try to wash our potatoes here." And, you know, what would we usually do when we would hear about something unexpected like this? We would say, well, don't wash your potatoes in the washing machine. Right? Mm. They did the opposite. They said, you know what? This is unexpected. But we also know that a lot of farmers probably have the same problem. So why don't we build in a dirt filter and make it a potato washing machine? And that's how their potato washing machine emerged. Again, based on an idea of where they want to go, but also the, the openness to unexpected information. Interesting, interesting, interesting. And tell me, so a lot of grant makers, a lot of foundations, a lot of people working in that space, uh, a lot of times there is a bit of risk aversion and uh, a sincere desi desire to plan uh, very strictly in, in, in many cases. What, um, what do you say to these folks and how can, we, um, how can the foundation space avail themselves of some of this uh, serendipity uh, mindset in order to, to improve the world a little bit more? It's interesting. So we just finished a, a study, actually, um, of an incubator in, in sub-Saharan Africa um, that kind of caters towards entrepreneurs and social entrepreneurs. And one of the premises we worked with was that as an incubator or in general as a kind of support program, being that the government, being that funders or others, essentially we try to manage as much as possible, right? We try to say, oh, like, tell us exactly how this program is run or tell us exactly how um, this and this person will be helped or whatever it is. 
And what I found fascinating is that this incubator and the reason why they were so successful was because they said, OK, we have some parameters that are non-negotiables, right? So we have some parameters um, like the core principles, values, um, core kind of even core like milestones in terms of, you know, what we want to know at which point. But at the same time, we built in this idea that most probably in their learning, the entrepreneurs and social entrepreneurs will slightly change their perspective. They will most probably change their idea a little bit. And because we built that in, because we say, for example, um, you have five mentors at the beginning, but we know that you will probably pivot from being a healthcare company to being a healthcare slash education company. We also will be able to directly bring in two more mentors on the um, on the education side as soon as you, you pivot or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And so by designing in a way that they have an approximate idea of almost like the rudimentary frame, but at the same time saying, we want you to, if you have unexpected things happen, we want you to adjust because that is the only way of showing us it, that you're learning. And so they're building in this learning perspective. And I think I've been missing that a lot with funders that I think as funders, we, um, I, I used to, you know, when, when um, especially at the LSE, like the Innovation Center and so on that, that we, we did there, a lot of the focus was on working with foundations around how do we incentivize entrepreneurs and social entrepreneurs to scale their social impact? How do we do that? How do we build that into programs and into proposals and everything else? And, and one thing I realized is that I think it's a lot of times has a certain rigidity that gives us an illusion of control because we think it holds people accountable because it asks them exactly about X, Y, Z. But actually what it a lot of time does is that people just kind of like tell the half truth, if that makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. Because you, you essentially, you, you don't give them the breathing space to actually include the kind of serendipity that happens to them all the time. And so my advice, or not advice, I mean, my, my thinking here is that, or one of the things I've, I've learned here is that um, one thing the incubator did really well was to say, here's the approximate program. Here are the kind of things in terms of the parameters that are important to us. Here is some of the things how we measure this. This is how you get the money from this X, Y, Z. But at the same time, it is like we legitimize you to change direction. And here's an interactive way of how we can then tweak that together and, and make that work. We check in after a year, we check in after two years and, and, and so on, so on. And so by developing this kind of more interactive um, approach to it, um, it allowed ventures to be much more transparent and much more open, but also to really share their learnings, which which then kind of also benefits their peers. And so I think um, to me that feels much more honest because, you know, it's like this one of my, my favorite visuals is this. Um, my colleague at, at Harvard, Leif Sharp, has developed that is this visual where, you know, we always try to plan things out and it looks like a straight line, right? Step by step by step, linear and thinking we have all under control and then life happens or a venture happens and it's almost, it's like a squibble, right? It's mm. kind of like, it just goes in circles and then sometimes up and down and everything else. But then again, in like, when we talk about the project or when we write back to the funder or something, we again tell it step by step and again as the straight line. And so what we're doing here is we're essentially, this illusion of control makes us less transparent, but it also makes us less depicting the actual living reality of people. And, and, and I've seen the same in companies, how people try to, you know, a lot of the CEOs, for example, we've been working with, um, they would, towards their board, always portray complete control. But then after like the second glass of red wine would say, hey, look, I'm not always under control and I have to wing it sometimes. And I would love to be more honest about this, but at the moment it feels like a weakness. And one of the hopes actually with this book also is to give uh, active language to cultivating serendipity, not 
as a loss of control, but actually of gaining control over uncertainty, because what you're doing now is you're not trying to hide away the things that anyways happen, but you're actually like framing it as an active language of something that you did because you created a culture that allows for it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how do we break down some of these barriers that we might instinctively have inside that maybe are, are, are a bit of a hurdle towards embracing serendipity? That's a great question. And it's one of those questions, you know, in my head now, there's 20 doors I could go down in terms of 20 different Pick ways. door number eight. <laughs> but I, I'll pick, let's see, door number eight has, has, has some of the biases, I think, in terms of that, that you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by the biases we all have in terms of, sure. you know, for example, how we tend to underestimate the unexpected, right? Mm-hmm. We, because we either we don't want to see it or um, we see it, but we don't want to act on it. Um, so to give you an example, um, in a lot of organizations, right, let's say you're um, an organization operating in, in, in Kenya and um, you have a clear plan of what you want to do. And then it turns out that a lot of the people you're working with have completely different experiences with your product or your service or something. And initially you might not want to see that because you're like, no, 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 we, we thought so much through what we really want to do and what, how this really works that like we don't really want to see this. Versus like what you're seeing in, in those organizations that do it well, they would have weekly meetings or so and literally ask people, what surprised you last week? What was something unexpected last week that happened? Because actually, that's the only way to revise our assumptions early on, rather than, you know, a lot of times after two years or three years, it's like, oh, we didn't really see that, like, the real impact comes through X, Y, Z, and, and so on, and so on. And it is because, A, we don't want to see the unexpected, because we probably put a lot of work into planning things. Um, but also, then, we, we, we are not incentivized to do that. And so one thing is really overcoming that kind of bias that we we underestimate how, how probable the unexpected is. Mm-hmm. Um, second is, is definitely um, something I'm, I'm, I'm always curious is, is this kind of whole thing around uh, post-rationalization. You know how we, we rationalize everything after the fact sure. and then we make a story around it, but that's not the real story, right? Like all these hero stories of social entrepreneurs and so on, if you would look at how what really happened, like it's, it's a lot of times very different, right? And not necessarily because it's not the real story as someone feels they experienced it, but maybe because they might leave out the kind of unexpected bits or um, they might tell it a bit more linear than it is or whatever it is. And so I'm a big fan of, of um, also what we talked about earlier, this kind of squibble line and like really trying to figure out like what is really happening here. And, and you know, um, I, for example, started doing a serendipity journal where I write down every day, you know, what were the assumptions I had? Um, what did I plan and then what surprised me and what did I revise and what is the new assumption I have? And by doing this, we're setting ourselves up for seeing the unexpected more, but also for, for, for again, like not seeing as, as anxiety enhancing, but actually in my case, for example, it usually is something that really leads me to new insights or working on something new or, or whatever it is. And so I think some of these kind of biases um, are really holding us back. Um, but of course, in organizations, especially, I mean, I've done a lot of work on social innovation and um, obviously, when it comes to innovation, a lot of people are very resistant to change, right? Sure. They're very resistant to everything that could potentially change um, um, life um, is, 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 is difficult. And one thing that I've, I found very useful is to reframe that away from something that is disturbing, like, uh, you know, a power structure or disturbing, like, um, the status quo that might work for some people to reframing it to saying, if we don't do this, we might not exist in two years, or we will most probably in, in the current environment, we will not exist in two years. 
um, or um, we will not kind of get the most information or we will not X, Y, Z. So in a way, showing the risk of not doing it rather than, than, than only focusing on the risk of doing it um, and, and really kind of easing people into the idea of, of that it actually reduces ambiguity rather than increasing it if it's, if it's well formulated. Yeah, interesting. How do, we, how do we connect the dots? It's, I don't know if there's a secret for that. You always hear about entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs. You say, well, these are individuals who are very creative, and, but actually the key thing with them is that they're able to connect the dots. They see, they see opportunities where maybe others don't. Is there any, um, any secret formula for connecting those dots, for helping the average or the everyday person avail themselves of that? There's definitely um, several, and I think the one that I that I that I'm a huge fan of is um, to whenever someone tells us something, mm -hmm. to always think about how does it link to something else in our life. Because I think a lot of times, you know, when we listen to someone, um, we we might take for granted what they tell us, or we might, you know, kind of already move on to the next point, or we might add a little bit to it. But if if we always think about something like, okay, when someone, when you tell me about, hey, I'm launching a new podcast, right? I can just say, hey, that's super, like, tell me more about the podcast. Or I can say, that's super, tell me more about the podcast. And then think about who are people who could be on the podcast, who are people who might run media companies who could do that, and really kind of relating what you're telling me as your challenge, right? Like expanding the podcast mm -hmm. or whatever it is, to relating that to the people I know, the ideas I have and everything else and constantly thinking about like, how could this be helpful to that? And, and so I think it's kind of um, when I look at the people who, have, who cultivate a lot of serendipity, they have an extreme great enlightened self-interest. Like what they've realized is that a lot of times by helping others, that's actually a great way also to not only feel well. I mean, every psychological study tells us anyways, right, that helping makes us happier than taking. But but also like in a way that kind of dot connecting that that kind of suggesting, hey, I great, this could work with what you just mentioned, or this could work. Essentially, what happens a lot of times is, of course, that people over time reciprocate that as well. And so it's really, um, um, I think, like an easy tweak is 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 really whenever someone is, is talking about something, always thinking about how does that connect to different areas where one could be helpful, but also then, um, you know, trying to understand what is the underlying need or the underlying assumption. Because one of the things I realized with myself is, you know, I do these things where if you would ask me for Christian, like, how can I help you at the moment? Or what is your challenge at the moment? I would probably tell you something, but I wouldn't try to make sense out of it while I'm telling you. So I'm not really sure what I'm actually, you know, necessarily mm -hmm. needing or something like that. But in a way, you need to read between the lines a little bit. And so I'm, I'm a big fan of the five why approach okay. of like always asking why a couple of times of saying, OK, so, Christian, you're telling me your key challenge at the moment is raising funding. Why is that your key challenge? Oh, you're telling me because you need money for X, Y, Z. Why do you need money for that? Oh, um, you need money for chairs. Well, but do you really need the chairs or is there something else? And so um, to give an example, maybe that, that brings it home is um, one of the favorite organizations or one of my favorite organizations I've been working with is a organization, a social enterprise called Reconstructed Living Labs in the okay. Cape Flats in Cape Town. And what they do is um, low cost education, right? So it's like 10 steps to build your business or 10 steps to use social media. And the idea is to work with local people in local communities who become teachers and, and who then essentially have like a super simple education approach. And one of the beautiful things they're doing is that they reframe every situation. Um, when they go into a local community, they don't ask, what do you need? They don't ask, you know, what's the resource need here? But they essentially say, what is already here? Oh, there's an old garage. 
wonderful. That could be a training center. And so the point here is that the way they approach this, their toolkit, they have a couple of simple things like, for example, the way they develop their budget, which goes around like whenever you write a budget, one of their franchisees, it has to like ask a couple of questions like, um, do you really need um, that item? If you need that item, if there's something, is there something else here that you could use? And if not, um, you know, is there someone around you who could help? And so what you're doing here is that you open up their perspective away from the focus on one resource or one thing to can I connect this to something else? If we need chairs here, um, maybe my brother has coincidentally just set up an event business and has these chairs or um, maybe we can sit on the floor, whatever it is. And so that kind of creativity that they display a lot of times comes from just asking a couple of questions that, 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 that opens our mind a little bit to how we could connect the dots differently away from resources and so to really thinking about what are alternative things we could do. Um, and that's, that's how a lot of creativity in their context happens. Excellent. Tell me, what's the, um, what's the key takeaway you'd have for our listeners today? What's the key thing you'd love for them to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? As a German who grew up next to a philosopher's way in Heidelberg, I feel I have to, it has to be a philosophical uh, thought. And, and Go for um, it. Th that is really, really related to, um, to Viktor Frankl, um, the, the, the gentleman I mentioned at the beginning. Um, so Viktor Frankl, he survived the Holocaust. He was in the toughest environment you can imagine, a concentration camp. And yet, even in that context, he found meaning in crisis. And so... Um, you know, he, for example, he would um, every day he would try to, to, to still talk with someone else. And by talking with that person, he would like make the other person feel better. But that would also make him feel better. Right. So he mm -hmm. had that meaning in the day to day. But also he still also wanted to write his book. Um, so he had this he had this bigger purpose and bigger meaning of once I get out of here, I will write this thing. And that duality of purpose, that duality of meaning um, was extremely impactful in, in what he'd be doing. But but really kind of what I found most fascinating about him was that especially in periods like at the moment this this ability to see meaning in every moment and even when something terrible like at the moment is happening to really try to figure out what is it in here that we can still find in here because uncertainty and bad things a lot of times also have a lot of potentiality because we it allows us to question things to redefine maybe what's important to us uh, to think differently about what's out there and so I feel like um, the, the kind of big takeaway is really serendipity is a lot of times about potentiality, that once we open our eyes to potentiality and what could be there, serendipity tends to happen more often because we see uncertainty and the unexpected as an ally rather than as, as someone who just tries to push us down. Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Christian Bush, author of the new book, The Serendipity Mindset, The Art and Science of Creating Good Luck. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. And to our listeners, thank you so much for listening as always. Please press that subscribe button if you haven't already. Christian, really wonderful. Thanks so very much for the insight. Very enjoyable conversation. Thank you so much for having me, Albert. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better. <music>